How do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Studying Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Katie. And I'm Jade. And this is Future Studying. Okay, so woofing. Woofing. What the hell is woofing? I wish there was a better word because I didn't actually use woof personally. I use helpex, but it just doesn't sound very sexy. Helpex. It's a bit of a nightmare. (laughs) It's not a market. They need to rethink their marketing. So woofing stands for willing workers on organic farms. It's a concept that's been around for a really long time, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be on a farm and it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be organic because, as you say, Helpex is a whole other platform. And so is that who you've always used? Yeah, yeah. So I originally started on Helpex um, just from the referral of a friend and I loved it because it did open up a lot more possibilities, whereas Woof was quite focused on organic farms. Mm. Um, And I don't know what it is, but for some reason I hear negative reviews of Woof 10 times the amount that I do of help help exchange. And I don't know what it is if there's some kind of culture in the woofing um, community where it's like, let's just exploit these buggers to within an inch of their life. I'm sure you don't do that. that Ryan, their fingers to the bone. Yeah, it's been a real experience. But anyway, I use help exchange. It's super cheap to join. It's cheaper than Wolf. And um, you could be doing anything. You could be polishing a lighthouse or manning a boat or collecting seaweed or looking after someone's kids or just having a homestay in exchange for an hour of work a day, folding someone's knickers. So I love the diversity of it. And it's just a really cheap and amazing way to travel and gain life experiences. And but really I won't give you just, just embedding yourself in the in the intimacy of the household that you become part of, it happens really quickly. Actually, I should backtrack because this is how you and I met. So I've never woofed or helpexed or have whatever we want to call it. I've never done it, but I have been hosting woofers for quite some time or since you first came to us. And we mm-hmm. now have two blocks in the year where we have um, kind of one to seven woofers seven's a bit too many if you ask my kids but um in spring (laughs) and again in autumn so my experience about this conversation will only be from the practical management side of actually having woofers in our house but what I'd love to hear is from you Katie about all the myriad of interesting weird quirky kooky differing experiences that you've had all over the world (laughs) so I don't know where do we go to from here how long have you been woofing for Oh, I started back in 2000, maybe it was 2014, and Tassie was calling. So that's where I went first and did a really big long stint down there. And the impetus was just to learn about the source of my food and get acquainted with it and do things that I felt maybe this is quite, I was concocting my own rites of passage in the lack of any socially constructed ones that I could buy into. So this was a rite of passage for me to go down there and to buy a rooster at auction and behead the poor bugger and eat him and understand that you look into something's eyes and you have a a relationship and a connection, but then, you know, his head whips off and the dog has it and he's running around the yard and it's Jackson Pollock painting and there's blood everywhere. Anyway, I just wanted to not be that meat eater who was completely disconnected. I think that 
it's such a struggle to kill living beings. I was the kid who couldn't even step on an ant lest I dissolve into a cascade of tears. But I think practically, practically and nutritionally, at least for me, I'm going to have meat in my diet. And so, yeah, the woofing thing, the, the help X thing was me saying, all right, girl, you got to you got to do the hard yards here and understand what it means to kill something or to harvest something or to grow something or just to be at the uh, coalface of food production. Mm. So I did yeah, it. Yeah, that's a really powerful reason to do it, isn't it? And you did it. Yeah. And so did you yeah. just do it with one with one family first and then think this is kind of cool, I kind of <laughs> got to see things that I never would have got to experience? Oh, it was just love at first backhoe. <laughs> Love it first, carrot. It was, um, I'd planned for it to be an extended adventure. Um, but so, yes, I had people like my dog's just scratching himself in the background here. So, I can hear, I can hear you. Hello, Dave. <laughs> Shut up, Dave. Um, so, yeah, I had a number of farms lined up because I wanted as much diversity as I could cram into this five or six months of financial leeway that I gave myself. So, it was everything from, um, kind of permaculture projects or cooperatives that were young people trying to change the world and then established flower farms and pig farms and anything I could. And over the years, it's taken me to Japan and to Korea and England. And it has just been this way to avoid tourist traps. And like you said, get this backstage pass, this VIP pass to people's most intimate experiences and lives and it's just been the best thing I've ever done and it's furnished me with all of these stories that I can tell people at the dinner table that make that make the experiences worthwhile as well because um, I was thinking about this today before, before our conversation and it's those moments where you're elbow deep in excrement or seizing up <laughs> because you've planted thousands of mizuna or splitting 20 tonnes of wood and you jump off the jetty at the end of the day and it's that physical fatigue and you know exhaustion and effort that you put in and it, at the time you're just thinking holy shit where am I what am I doing who are these people what has my yeah. life become retrospectively <laughs> we go oh my god what a zany and colorful and incredible existence so as much as anything it's about the story and about this richness of life so that's probably mm. the, the biggest and best part of it for me and do you feel like you've kept in touch with the people who you've connected with along the way? Because you did get such a, back, a strong backstage pass mm -hmm. to see their most intimate moments where they're yelling at their kids or running naked between shower and bedroom or, you know, exhausted <laughs> because they're in the middle of a harvest season or whatever it might be. You see all of it. I'm really aware of how much we share and I sometimes think, oh, brother, I wonder if they'll ever come back. But um, do you feel like that then gives you this sort of intimate connection that you will always have with them and you've then got this bolt hole somewhere oh, in the world? I love how you you say that and I because I just adore you guys and it's been this awesome ongoing relationship and when you say you've always got a place at our place, that just makes me feel so happy and humbled and gratified and um, I remember Harry or Birdie walking in on me in the toilet and that was that was a bonding experience. And you do see that's what you mean. Like you get you get really intimate. <laughs> you get cozy. So yeah, we, we now have friends all over the world. Yeah. yeah. And I very much appreciate the way you do woofing and volunteering because I think that you're happy to be transparent and candid and not polished. And that's 
that's the best because I think only on a couple of occasions have I had experiences where it is more cl- more clinical and I feel like a factory farm woofer and that person or family doesn't really let you into mm-hmm. their life and you're kind of in the shipping container off off duty you know you're there and then you're on from this hour to this hour it's just not the same experience but yours is definitely very real and very family family feel and so George and I are always fascinated by the host's experience and I would love to hear like your best and worst of woofing and also how you see that maybe (laughs) bettering the world or has a pathway for young people to get involved in agriculture. Well, it's a beautiful way to get involved, actually, not even just for young people, but for people who have thought about it but don't have the capacity to take the risk of lots of time or lots of cost. So, I don't know, from our <clears throat> from our perspective, we took a while to find our feet with it and, and we found that what worked best was when we were pretty structured, so we made it really clear as to what our expectations were of the gorgeous people that were coming. We tend to tap people on the shoulder rather than just take everybody hollis bollis. And if it's someone that we haven't met or known about or come across before, we do a fair bit of research before we go back and and say yes. And we do that because, one, we've got kids, and so for us it's really important that our kids are going to connect with whoever they are. They're, the boys' litmus test is, do they play soccer? And if they play soccer, they can come. <laughs> and Minnie's <laughs> litmus test is, will they jump on the trampoline with me? So, so they sort of sound like they don't care, but actually they do. If they're particularly strong-minded, bolshy people, my boys can struggle a little bit because they feel like their their private personal space just gets dominated too heavily. Um, they're very much a massive part of our life, our kids, and so they're in and in it, breathing every element of what we do. So our woofers need to become like big brothers or big sisters to them, and we need to get a sense that that would happen for yeah. it to work because and then the other reason not just for our kids is that um the way it seems to work the best of all is when they're with us for 10 um uh, sorry three weeks because any less than about 10 days it's exhausting the first 10 days is really exhausting because there's a bit of a performance so I love the way you say oh it's got this intimacy and it really does but the first 10 days you're absolutely hosting because they don't know where everything is and they don't quite know how much rope you're going to give them or how much leeway they've got or mm. how much confidence you have in them and we haven't quite worked out what their skill set is like and and how kind of practical they are we haven't kind of worked all of that out and sometimes there's a, a language barrier too um so what we've found is that you've just got to get through the first 10 days and that's them working out your your language, your sense of sarcasm or sense of humour, your um, rhythm. So our daily structure is pretty pretty tight when they're here. You know, we lay the table at 7.30 in the morning and everyone's expected to be there ready for breakfast by 7.30 and we, we eat and brief what the day looks like until 8. And then we go back into a family zone for an hour while we get the kids out the door to school and, and get all the morning chores done. And then at nine, we kind of regroup with our woofers and, and we look at what our, our day has in front of us. And sometimes if it's just one person, then it's just Charlie and that one person working alongside each other for the day. But more often than not, it's multiple people and we're all out there working on a particular project together. Sometimes, like last year when we had the least orchard, we had a group going to the least orchard and a group going to the home orchard and then a couple of others kind of doing running around things. So it was full on. So we briefed every morning in 
and then we would work until morning tea and break, work until lunch and break, and then generally after lunch we say go do your own thing, go explore. If you've got a car, go explore the region, go for a run around the bush, you know, go for a swim in our dam, go fishing. And what kind of tasks are you um, offering to people? And I'm guessing you're tailoring those tasks to either what the people want to learn or what their existing skill set is. Can you give some examples of what yes, is happening? fully, but are fully based on who they are and what they can do, but also based on what the season demands of us at the time. So that's why we only have it in autumn and spring because there are two really busy seasons for kind of set up for the year and then harvest. Um, and it could be anything. Like when we had you here, wow, we were kind of shooting from the hip and flying by the seat of our pants and we had you doing all sorts of weird and wacky things. Um <laughs> You know, it'd be, you know, it might be weaving, finishing off a weaving project that got started with a workshop and we just haven't quite finished it. But we've got a whole pile of sticks there that need to be woven in. So, you know, the girls will put their earbuds in and they'll listen to a podcast while they spend a couple of hours weaving outside in the sun. Or it might be, you know, paving or, or building stone walls or collecting rocks off the property or roadsides or... um it might be harvesting. It might be a solid kind of week of just picking apples and listening mm. to music and having a laugh and a bit of a laugh while we're in the orchard. But mm. there's a few things that are pretty structured. So we now have a whiteboard that we pull out every Sunday night and we do an outside fire and, and um, you know, we do a, a Bonnie and a Barbie and have a heap of beers and we, we work out what the week looks like. So who's got what skills and who's got what interest in learning certain things. And away we go. We plan the week out. Everybody cooks. Everybody cleans. The cook never cleans. There's no phones at the table. Um, if your bucket toilet in the woofing shed is full, you empty it. And they're about <laughs> the only rules. Every other thing is kind of just kind of all in, hands on, um, hands on deck. So that's how it works for us. And some people really hit their straps with that quite quickly and some people never quite do we had one gorgeous girl who was here she was meant to be here for four weeks and she ended up staying for three because it just didn't quite work for her we were mm. in a really physical period of yeah. our year and it, that was it was quite hard work um then we had another guy who was meant to be here for a couple of months and he was with us for six months and now we feel like <laughs> the kids have got this other brother that lives somewhere else yeah um so you you do develop beautiful relationships and I always I might have mentioned it before on a podcast I talk about them as our superpowers because you develop these beautiful friendships and deeply intimate relationships with people who are always welcome to stand back on this property because they've been part of the building of it and so I love the whole wolfing and volunteering so that's how we run it but how you know I would love to know you know Japan how did it go wolfing in Japan (laughs) yeah well it was it was great because having only done it in Australia prior to that Japan had all that fun and challenge of navigating not only a language barrier but a cultural barrier and an expectations <laughs> misalignment. <laughs> and man, it was just it was just brilliant. And especially a place like Japan where it's such a so hot right now tourist destination. Well, not right now, but it's increasingly popular and people have <laughs> such a perception of Japan, and I know I did. And then you go there and I'm so thankful that I was able to chat with people who have taken in not only Japanese history and culture, but, I mean, that's their place and that's their their identity and who they are, but, but can talk about it in a way that is quite 
illuminating. Like this is how um, Japanese culture asks people to behave and this is why we've been shaped the way that we are. This is why the water has shaped the people and the rice farming has um, underscored our community and the natural disasters have pushed us in this direction. And so that was really beautiful because instead of just having this incredible image of Kyoto in all its perfection and the pristine, you know, bamboo forests and everything meticulous, we also Mm -hmm. understood um, the trials and tribulations and the incredible lack of organic agriculture there and the challenges that people face if they want to eat really well and what's happened to their food system and the westernization. So that's just Japan. But I think Wolfing anywhere outside your local area also has that benefit of um, just empathising and understanding where other communities and cultures are at with um, their health and with their food system. So Japan was great, 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 great. And just to um, keep this super short and succinct, um, I thought it was interesting before when you were talking about how you go about vetting people who are coming up, coming onto the farm. And I just thought it would be good to share a couple of things that um, have been my experience and maybe have now offered a bit of insight and it might ease someone's transition if they're going into wolfing for the first time because one of my friends, her and her fiancé are actually going wolfing or helpexing for their honeymoon, which is just the coolest idea ever. And I see this real interest in (laughs) using farming as like, Um, a way to connect with your significant other or in lieu of an expensive holiday they couldn't afford to go um, somewhere really snazzy so anyway I just think that's a really cool opportunity for people to see wolfing and help exchanges like I guess it's like that um, eco-tourism but not not even I just thought that it was good to tell people maybe that having an expectation having an open mind for a start so understanding that you're going to rock up to so many different personalities and ways of doing things and ways of eating and schedules that it's really, really good just to reduce your expectations before you arrive or know your personal boundaries and what you're comfortable with, but just accept the unknown of that situation and that's the whole thrill of it and just pack really warm things, (laughs) warm things that you don't mind are going to get, if they're going to get like ripped and torn and bloodied and muddied revel in that whole experience of being makeupless. This was my long-winded point. I vet people who I'm going to stay with too. So there are enough farms out there for people to be selective and to align with their interests or to rock up and not be met by jerks because some people are jerks. There's not many. It's a really small percentage. But I think that like you, for your woofers, I go online and stalk the shit out of that person or I read their profile on Wolf or Help Exchange mm-hmm. and scrutinise it because I've had one really bad experience and that was my first wolfing experience where I just didn't read the signs. I didn't look at the red flags on someone's profile, the negative comments that were, you know, scattered through their reviews and I rocked up and I was, I felt physically uncomfortable and potentially threatened in that situation and I think just be aware that, just keep yourself safe and do the research and make sure that person is who they you know, who they say they are and you can be choosy and it's good to be choosy because you don't want to have a bad experience and then not go there again because, like I said, Hellpex and Wolfing is basically the best thing you can do with your life. It's a career. Perhaps now you'll consider packing your bags for an adventure or opening your house for some really helpful guests. 
Next week, you'll meet the effervescent Sally Jones. She's made a mark on the floundering world of the dairy industry, spurred on by a family tragedy. She's the founder of the milk brand Gippsland Jersey, and we met with her in the heart of Jersey country, Jindavik. We get a little insight into this powerhouse of a woman, so we hope you'll join us to hear that chat. In the meantime, as always, we'd love your feedback, and we're really grateful for any support that you throw our way and share us around. Thanks again.